Good morning. Well, thank you for being here today. If you are here for the first time, thanks for coming, checking out our church. I'd love to meet you after the service. A couple other pastors and I will be down front afterwards. We'd love for you to just come down and say hello. You are here in the middle of a series called The Story, where we're looking at uh, the big story of God from the book of Genesis, and we're going to go all the way through the end of the Bible. We're a little over halfway through, and we've discovered a couple of things. One thing we've discovered is that God relentlessly pursues people in spite of how stupid we are. He comes after us with love that just will not end. We've learned all about that through a chronological Bible called The Story. If you don't have one, you can pick one up out at the cafe today. There's some Bibles coming down the aisles right now. If you don't have one, raise your hand. The ushers will give you one. You can keep it. You can borrow it and leave it in the back on the way out. Or if you would just like to look on the screen, all the scriptures are up there as well. Have you ever lived in a place that you just didn't want to live? You just didn't really want to be there. And you were waiting till the day when you got to leave. Well, my wife and I have done that. And I'm not going to say the city because if you're from there, I don't want to be offensive. But we lived in this place that we knew God wanted us to be. And we had some great friends and were able to do a ministry that made a difference. But we didn't like where we lived. And so finally, when... God opened up opportunities for us to come here to the wonderful city of Raleigh, North Carolina. Many years ago, we took the opportunity to do that. And I can remember with the minivan loaded up and two little babies at that time in the back seat, looking in the rearview mirror and thanking God that that city was in the rearview mirror. You may have some things in your life, in fact, I bet you do, that you would like to leave in the rearview mirror. It may not be a city or a place that you've lived, but you probably made some mistakes that you would like to just leave in the past. You've probably had things done to you that you would like to just forget and look in the rearview mirror and say, that's, that's behind me. You've probably had some experiences in life that you would just like to say, good riddance. I'm glad that's all behind me now. Well, as we're looking at God's people and we follow them through this amazing journey of devotion, of commitment, of rebellion, of sin, of consequences, we pick up the story at a place where God's people have just spent 70 years in captivity in a country that's not their own. They were moved from Jerusalem to Babylon by the Babylonians when they defeated Jerusalem about 500 years before the time of Christ. And we're going to start the story today when they get to leave exile in their rearview mirror. An exile is simply just being forced to live in a place that's not your home. And they're finally to the spot after living all those years in exile where God has arranged it till they can leave Babylon in the rearview mirror. We pick up the story in the book of Ezra when God had worked in the heart of an ungodly king so the people could be free. God had worked in the heart of this king named Cyrus who decided that it was time for God's people to be able to go back to their home country. And it's recorded in Ezra chapter 1 beginning at verse 2 when King Cyrus says this, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. 
any of his people among you may go up to Jerusalem and Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem, and may their God be with them. And in any locality where survivors may now be living, the people are to provide them with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with freewill offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. Then the family, heads of Judah and heads of Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose heart, had moved, whose heart God had moved, prepared to go up and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. All of their neighbors assisted them with articles of silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with valuable gifts in addition to all the freewill offerings. So what was happening here, God's people had lost everything when they were taken into exile. All their treasures all their gold, the best of the best people were taken into exile. And more importantly to them, the temple had been leveled. And the temple was a representation of God with them. And King Cyrus starts to recognize this. And so he sends them back so they can build their temple. Because to them in exile, they were living in a place where God wasn't with them. And so he sends them back to rebuild the temple because that was their sign that God was with them. It was just a building made of stone, but, but it was a visible reminder of the presence of God among them. When they would walk through town and see the temple, they would have been encouraged because they'd lived so many years in exile. Now that this temple is rebuilt, they can see evidence of the presence of God with them. And so they arrived home back in Jerusalem, and the first thing they start to do is rebuild. They rolled up their sleeves, they broke off into work groups, and they started working really hard to make sure this temple got completed. And like humans are able to do now, when we come together in unity, we can accomplish great things or we can accomplish horrible things, but something can get accomplished when people come together in one heart with one purpose to accomplish a task. And that's what they did. And it's recorded in Ezra chapter three, verse one. It says, when the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled into their towns, the people assembled together as one in Jerusalem. So the unity that they had got them together, they assembled as one, and they began to build. The first thing they did, they built an altar, and they sacrificed on it. And then they started to build, and because they were so unified, they very quickly got the foundation built. And when they were finished with the foundation and the sacrifice, they had this to say in Ezra chapter 3. With praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord, He is good. His love toward Israel endures forever. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But if you go on to read, as quickly as they got started, they allowed themselves to get distracted. Only the foundation was laid, so it's not a temple yet. It's the foundation they're going to build the temple on, and then they allowed themselves to get distracted. Can you relate? You have something you're going to do. You want to make happen. You want to make sure it happens, and you start with this great enthusiasm that it's all going to work out, and then you get distracted. Now, if you're like me, you're blessed with uh, being easily distracted. 
I have to, I love to write. I love when I spend a day putting together what I'm going to say now or, or somewhere else, what, delivering God's word or something I'm writing for something else. It's a day that's always well spent and I'm encouraged by it. But getting the noise to stop and getting the silence so I can sit and write is very difficult sometimes. So I made this sign for my office door and the staff knows when that sign's on there, no knocking, no talking, except Joel sometimes talks through the crack of the door. He doesn't knock. He'll say, have you heard lunch yet? And I'll just hear this voice. But there's a sign on my door, which he ignores, that says, it has these words. It says, sermonating on it. And right below it, it says, please don't disturb. It takes him forever to get started again. And that's true. Like I I can be focused. I can be just zoned in hyper-focused, making things happen, cranking out good stuff, and then something happened, I'm off in another direction. Can you relate to that? Like you come to work on Monday morning and, and, and you've got all this stuff to do and something distracts you and you're driving home Friday evening going, where did the week go? I spent the whole week distracted. And especially today with all of the distractions that we have, we have to fight to stay focused. Even in the amount of time standing up here, I have to fight to stay focused because you may have left your phone in the bottom of your purse and it's going to take you four rings to get it when it starts ringing. Or your baby is still really small and you need to bring him in here with you. Or maybe you don't need to bring him in here with you. And they start crying and I have to sit here and say, be focused, be focused. Don't call somebody out. Just be focused. <laughs> or, a, or a big truck will go by on the street or the fire engine will come out and I'll hear that and I have to force myself to stay focused. And that's what they were dealing with. Things started happening in their lives, just like ours, that got them off track, that kept them from being focused on the task God had for them. And if you're taking notes, write this down. When I am distracted, I forget what's important. And that's what they were getting ready to do. They started off with the best of intentions. We're going to build the temple so we can have God's presence with us We are going to build. We're going to do this. And then distractions come. We are now about eight weeks into the new year, 2014. And I'm sure, this is the encouraging part of the message, all right? I'm sure eight weeks ago you had some goals. I'm going to lose weight. I'm going to look better this year. I'm going to eat better. But then there's just like, oh man, I, I'm, I'm in a hurry. I got to eat. I got, so a hamburger's fine and the French fries are fine and the pizza's fine day after day after day. And then, and then you get distracted from your original purpose for the year, which was I'm going to take care of this issue in my life now. Or you said, I'm not going to spend as much money this year. I'm not going to use my credit card as much. I'm going to save more. I'm going to spend less. And when I get to December, I'm going to have more money for Christmas. That's what's going to happen in 2014. And then they have a President's Day sale. It's like, well, it's on sale. It only comes once a year, honey. We got to get it because it's, it's 12 months before this comes around again. Go hurry, get it. Or you start getting New Year coupons in the mail and it makes supposed to make everything cheaper. So let's go get some. Or then the spring sales come or the Easter sales come or the summer sales come. And before you know it, the year is done and you're thinking, how did I get so distracted from how I started out? It's the same way God's people got distracted. They lost their priorities. What they were focusing on wasn't evil. What they did when they stopped working on the temple wasn't evil. It wasn't rebellious. 
they just lost their focus and what should have been first became second. C.S. Lewis says this about our priorities. He says, if you put first things first, you get second things thrown in. But if you put second things first, you lose both first and second things. And he was a follower of Christ. And so what he's referring to is this principle in Scripture of first fruits. You can read lots of Scriptures about, even when it's about generosity, about giving your time or your money. Do this first, and then all these things will go better. Jesus also talked about that when he said, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these other things will be added to you as well. That's what they got turned around. They started seeking after other things that were not bad, that were not evil, but it just got them distracted. They lost their focus and they headed off in the wrong direction. And they didn't just lose their focus for a day or two and think, well, we'll get it back together next week. They lost their focus for 16 years. And what was supposed to be this beautiful, ornate temple of God became an abandoned construction site. You've probably seen, if you're, if you're into social media, floating around the pictures of the 1984 Sarajevo Winter Games sites. Anybody seen that? So that was before the Civil War happened. And so they've gone back recently and taken pictures and everything is grown over. It looks like it's 100 years old. It looks like, you know, Armageddon has happened. So the apocalypse has come or something. And, and it just, it's all grown over and it looks really sad. When Cinda and I lived in Baton Rouge, which I just told you the place I said I wouldn't tell you. I'm sorry. <laughs> if you're from Baton Rouge, I'm sorry, okay? It was just, it was for me, not the right place, okay? I'm sure for some people it's an awesome place because people do live there. So I apologize. If you want to come talk to me afterwards, I'll apologize again. So when we lived in Baton Rouge, there was a certain televangelist who still has this huge thing there, and, and he, he had a, a Bible college, and he had this huge complex, this huge campus that looked like a college campus, and on that campus, he was building this big tower to help with this Bible college. It was about 10 stories high, huge building, but as he was building this tower, he lost focus. He got distracted. He got involved in sin. And that tower still stands, at least a few years ago when I was there, as a reminder of what happens when people get off focus. It's abandoned, it's just a shell, it's grown up, the concrete is all stained, and it's an eyesore. That is what had happened to the temple of God. It stands there in Baton Rouge as a reminder of what happens when you get off course. The temple of God was grown over a grown-over foundation as a reminder every time they walked by it. You got off course. You got distracted. You lost your focus. And so just like happens very often, in, especially in the Old Testament, a prophet shows up to speak to the people of God on God's behalf. The prophet's name was Haggai. Haggai comes and stands on the site of this temple, and he says this to God's people. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin? 
Now, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much, but have harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. And what he's saying is, you started out okay, but is it really a time for you to be focused on building your lives and your career and all the stuff you're pursuing when the temple of God lays in ruin? You have forgotten what should be first and you focused on what is second and you're not enjoying any of it because you have your priorities out of whack. None of it's filling you up the way you could be able to enjoy it. You're not because you're putting the second thing second and you've forgotten the first thing and here it lays in ruins and he's saying, give careful thought to the way you're living. And God says the same thing to us. Is it a time in life to be working the hours that you're working so hard, so many? Is it a time in life to be a two-income family when maybe it's time to just be a one and sacrifice now? Is it a time to have our kids involved in so many things they have learned from us how to be stressed out? Is it a time to focus in this area that should be second when really I need to spend my focus on growing my relationship with God, with my family, with my friends. See, they were having trouble being satisfied with all of the blessings they had. But it wasn't because the things they were doing was wrong. It wasn't because it was wrong for them to focus on making money and building a career. It was because they put it as a priority one when it's supposed to be priority Two, and they started to say, let's go over here and work on this stuff. We'll get back to that someday. Someday we'll get back and we'll work on that. And if you would have said, hey, folks, what's your plan to get this temple finished? Hey, we're going to get to it someday. We have a plan. We're going to go back someday and start working on God's house. And they said that for 16 years. What is your someday? Because write this down if you're taking notes. Someday is not a plan. It's not a plan to say, someday I'm going to start leading my family from a spiritual perspective. It's not a plan to say, someday, someday I'm going to do this. Someday I'm going to do that. It's to, say, to come in here every week and you feel something welling up inside of you when we talk or when a song is sung, or when a prayer is prayed, and you think, someday, I'm going to walk down there after the service, and everybody else is leaving, I'm going to talk to him. Someday, when they advertise a baptism service, I'm going to take that step of faith, and I'm going to express my faith in Christ for all to see. Someday, I'm going to do that. Someday, I am going to get in a small group so I can get to know some people, and I'm not just a person that comes for an hour on Sunday morning. Someday, I'm going to do that. Someday is a horrible plan. You'll never get there and be the husband, the wife, the child, the friend, the student, the teacher, the follower of Christ. You could be if you just stop saying, well, someday I'll do that. And you made someday today. That's what had gotten them in the circumstances 
where God was not living among them because they kept saying, well, someday, someday I'll get to this. And this prophet shows up and this prophet says, you need to give some careful thought here and think about what you're doing. You need to think about why did you even start this project and, and, and what motivated you to stand on that foundation and sing praises to God? What made you do this? It's because you wanted the presence of God among you. Every time a married couple comes to me or an individual and says, I'm having trouble with my marriage. We're not getting along. There's a lot of tension at home. The first place I start, and I'm not a trained counselor, so this may be a horrible place to start for your counselor. I apologize. But first place I start, I just say, well, what made you fall in love with her? What made you fall in love with him? Why don't you tell each other? Sometimes it gets a little awkward in my office. I'm saying, you know, tell each other. Why did you, what did you see in them? And when they start to do that, it's amazing how the walls will come down. If you're sitting here in a marriage, it's kind of rocky right now. Just feeling, you know, just like there's some tension. Things aren't right. And you don't know if it's going to make it. Look the other person in the eye and say, this is why I married you. This is why I fell in love with you. I have a friend that we talk on a regular basis over the phone. He lives a long way from here. And he called me up one day and said, I'm really struggling my marriage. I don't think she loves me. Things just aren't working. It's tension all the time. And I said, try this. Today, you need to go sit down with her, hold her hand, look her directly in the eye, and tell her every reason you fell in love with her, every reason you married her, everything you love about her. A few weeks went by, he called me back and he said, hey, I tried that. I said, how'd it go? He's like, it worked. She started telling me the same thing. And he said, it's not, we're not out of the woods yet, but it really broke down the walls to go back and think about it. And so this prophet is saying, give some thought to your ways. Think about why you're doing what you're doing. Think about what motivated you to get started. And so they think about it. They get started again and they work with intensity, and they get the temple finished. They wrap it up. They build it. And now they can see the presence of God with them, because to them, that's what it meant. Here's the temple. God dwells in there, and he's with us. And so everything else started to work better when they put the first thing first. This is recorded in Ezra chapter 6. The temple was completed on the third day of the month of Adar, in the sixth year of the reign of King Darius. Then the people of Israel, the priests, the Levites, and the rest of the exiles celebrated the dedication of the house of God with joy. They obeyed God, they got back on track, they regained their focus, and they finished. But this is yet another story that kind of ends without completion because as hard as they worked on that temple as beautiful as it may have been as much to them as it signaled that God was with them it was still just a foreshadowing of, of what was to come and that was Christ because the temple still wasn't good enough because the temple was a place where if you wanted to meet with God there, you really couldn't. You had to go meet with the priest. And only he could go into the part of the temple that was the holiest of holy places and stand in the presence of God. So if you had a problem, you had to go say, hey, Mr. Priest, I got a problem. Could you go tell God about it? And I need you to ask him this. And he would have to go and be in the presence of God. People couldn't do that. Only priests 
could do that. If you have an issue, you don't have to, you can come to me if you want, but you don't need me between you and God to solve anything. You need you before God. And that's what Jesus coming changed everything about the temple. Because when Jesus came, no longer did we have to go into a temple, speak to a priest, and let him go speak to God on our behalf. When Jesus came, he said, I'm your high priest. Come and talk to me. And you don't need Donnie or anybody else to do that. I mean, I can point you there, but I don't need to be the middleman. Jesus cut out that middleman. And this was just a foreshadowing that, you know, the temple's not, not good enough. We need something else. And this is still about five centuries before Jesus shows up on the earth. So if you're taking notes, write this down. Because of Jesus, I can be in God's presence. They couldn't. We can because of Christ. Because of Jesus, I can be God's temple. That's where he dwells. That's where his spirit dwells. Not off in some place, in a room, in a building that you got to go talk to somebody else to get to. He dwells in the hearts and lives of people who follow him. In the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, the apostle Paul says this, don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You do not belong to yourself, for God bought you with a high price. So you must honor God with your body. Now, he's speaking in the context of sexual immorality. There were people in this church he was talking to in a town, Corinth, that, were, that had a very warped view of sexuality. And he was trying to explain to them you realize when you do sexually immoral things with your body, you're really doing that to the temple of God because you are the temple of God. And he explains to them in detail, you know, it, I'll, I'm paraphrasing, but it's okay to have sex. It's okay to enjoy. You just got to do it in the right context. And if it's in the right context, have at it, enjoy, have fun. It'll make your life better. He doesn't say it like that. That's the way I said it. But that's what he means, I'm sure. But it's got to be in the right context in marriage. And so people were taking it out of context. And he was saying, look, do you know what you're doing when you take sexual acts out of context? You are defiling the temple of God because you are the temple. That's where the temple is today. That's where God dwells today. We have this building that's not even six months old yet. And it's awesome. We love it. Our church has grown because of it. But may we always have a sign out there at the cafe that says food and drink allowed in the auditorium. Because there's nothing special about this place. It's a room with chairs and carpet that can be replaced when you spill your coffee on it. It's not that big of a deal. It's only a big deal because people assemble to worship God and learn how they are God's temple, not this place. This place will wear out. This place I think we're going to have to build on to pretty soon. But this place is just a place. It's just concrete and metal. You are the temple of God. And that's because of Christ. And because of Christ, you can receive God's forgiveness. See, the way it would have worked for them in temple days is they would have come to the temple once a year and they would have brought an unblemished lamb or bull, and they would have brought that animal, they would have laid it on the altar, they would have slit its throat, killed it, the blood would have drained out, 
and they would have burned it and they would have sacrificed it on the altar. But it didn't forgive their sins. What it did, it carried their sins a year forward. So it's like paid, it was like putting something on layaway. So they, they came and they, they sacrificed the animal. Their sins were rolled forward for a year. Another year, you got to get another animal. You got to come back. You got to kill it again. And then another year. And then another year to show the inadequacy of people to make their own sin right. Because of Christ, our sins are forgiven. They're not rolled forward. They're not, they're not just like, okay, you got to come back next year and do this again. Because of Jesus, our sins that we've done in the past, stuff that we, stupid things we've done, goofs up we've made, rebelliousness against God, it's forgiven. Things you're doing now, forgiven because of Jesus. And because of this verse in 1 John 1, 9 that says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness, our sins in the future can be forgiven. So you know, because of Jesus, nothing's rolled forward. I don't have to live in guilt because everything in the past is forgiven. Everything I'm doing now is forgiven. And clearly the Bible shows us how we can ensure that in the future, our sins are perpetually forgiven. That's, what, that's, that's why it's significant that we don't have to think about a physical temple today because God dwells in the hearts and lives of people who follow Christ. And that's why we say we help people connect with God. How do we do it? We do it through helping them get into a growing relationship with Christ because that's where the power is. That's where the forgiveness is. And that's where God will dwell in your heart and in your life if you're open to it. So what is it that you would like to leave in your rearview mirror today? What is it that you're saying, well, someday I'm going to get past this. Someday I'm going to leave this behind me and I'm going to move on. Whatever it is, stop saying someday and make it today. You can come down and talk to me or any of the other pastors that are down front. If you don't want to walk down front after the service, find one of the pastors in the lobby and say, I'm tired of making excuses and saying someday I want it to be today. Let's pray. God, thank you for your offer of forgiveness for us. And God, that you dwell in us, you forgive us, and you want to make us your temple. God, for those of us that have things in life that we want to leave in the rearview mirror, may you give us the strength to stop saying someday and let today be the day whether someone makes a decision sitting right where they are or they want to come down and have prayer and start a relationship with Christ. God, may you work in people's hearts and lives to motivate them to stop saying someday. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.